0: 15. The soldiers go a marching, pump, pump, pump. The catapults are flinging, womp, womp, womp. The horses come a trotting, clump, clump, clump. And down falls the enemy, stump, stump, stump. The steps of the salon were impressive on their own white marble, wide, and colonnaded, gently curving around the building's girth. Clearly, they were not impressive enough for the Aramari's tastes, however and so the steps had been embellished. Two additional stairwells, immense and unsupported, curved off the salon's steps to the left and right, like wings poised in flight. They were made of daystone, so that they glowed faintly. Only a Scrivener could have built them. They were magnificent even against the looming backdrop of the tree, which tended to diminish any mortal effort at grandeur to pointlessness. In fact, the twin stairwells seemed to come from the tree itself, suggesting a divine connection for the people who descended them, which was probably the point. I could not see the platforms at the tops of the Daystone stairways, but it was not hard to guess that the Scriveners had etched gates into each. Shahar, Remith, and perhaps a few others of the central family would arrive by this means, then descend to the salon's actual steps. Revoltingly predictable, but they worried Tempins. I couldn't expect better. Sighing, I craned my neck again from my vantage point. The lid of a muck bin at the corner of a dead-end street, about a block away from the salon building. The Avenues of Nobles was a sea of mortal heads, thousands of people standing about or walking, laughing, talking, the aura of excitement wafting off them like a warm summer breeze. The city street artists had taken shameless advantage of the opportunity to make festive ribbon pennants, dancing puppets with the face of famous folk, and small contraptions that blatted at a few flakes of sparkling, white confetti when blown hard. Already the air was thick with the glittering motes, which did a marvelous job of capturing the thin, dappled light that passed for daytime and shadow. Adults and children alike seemed to love the things. I shivered now and again, as their pleasure in the toys stirred whatever was left of the god in me. Hard to focus amid so many distractions. My hands itched to play with one of the puppets. It had been so long since I'd had a new toy. But I had a job to do. So I kept scanning the crowd, holding on to a gutter pipe as I leaned this way and that. I would know when I found what I was looking for. It was only a matter of time. Then, just as I began to worry, I spotted my quarry, moving past a tightly packed group of middle-aged women who looked both thrilled and terrified to be among such a crowd. Amon, wearing old clothing that had the look of garments taken from a white hall tithe pile, with unkempt hair that hadn't seen a comb in days. He passed one of the women and stumbled, bracing one hand on her back to right himself and apologizing quickly. It was nicely done. He had bowed himself away and into the current of foot traffic almost before the woman realized he'd touched her. I grinned, delighted. Then I hopped down from the bin lid. Another man immediately claimed my place atop it, throwing a belligerent look at my back, and hurried after him. Took a half block to catch up with him. He was small and wove among the members of the crowd as deftly as a river snake among reeds. I was a grown-up and had to be polite. But I'd guessed his destination, a pack of children milling about a stall that sold tamarind lime juice, and that made it easy to head him off a few feet before he reached them. I caught his thin, wiry arm and stayed ready, because boys his age were not defenseless. They had no compunctions against biting, and they tended to run in packs. The boy swore at me in polyglot profanity, immediately trying to pull free. Let go! What'd you take? I asked, genuinely curious. The woman hadn't a purse visible, probably fearing exactly what had happened to her, but there could have been one beneath her clothing. Jewelry, a shawl or something? Or did you actually manage to get into her pocket? If the latter, he was a master of his craft and would be perfect for my needs. His eyes grew wide. I ain't take nothing. Who the hell's? He jumped suddenly and grabbed at my wrist, which was already emerging from his pocket. I'd gotten only one coin. My hands were too damned big now for proper pocket picking. But his face turned purple with fury and consternation, and I grinned. I lifted the hand that held the coin and closed my fingers around it. Didn't even need magic for this trick. When I opened my hand again, two coins lay there. His and one from my own pocket. The boy froze, staring at this. He did not take either coin, turning a suddenly shrewd and wary look on me what you want. I let him go, now that I'd gotten his attention, to hire you and any friends you've got with similar inclinations. We don't want trouble. The slangy, contracted mite he'd been using vanished as swiftly as he had after lifting the woman's purse. Keepers don't bother us as long as we stick to pockets and wallets. Anything more and they'll hunt us down. I nodded, wishing I could bless him with safety. All I want you to do is look, I said. Move through the crowd, see what you usually see, do what you usually do. But if you let me, I can look through your eyes. He caught his breath, and for a moment I couldn't read his face. He was astonished and skeptical and hopeful and frightened all at once. But he searched my face with such sudden intensity that I realized, far later than I should have, what he was thinking. When I did, I started to grin, and that did it. His eyes got as big as twenty merry coins. Trickster, trickster, he whispered. Stole the sun for a prank. N pulsed on my breast, pleased to be mentioned. No prayers now, I said, cupping his cheek with one hand. Mine. I'm not a god today, just a man who needs your help. Will you give it? He inclined his head just a hair more formally than he needed to. Ah, he was marvelous. Your hand, I said, and he offered it to me at once. I still had a few ways of using magic, though they were crude and weak and a betrayal of my pride to employ. The universe did not listen to me the way it once had, but as long as I kept the request simple, it would grudgingly obey. Look, I said, in our tongue, and the air shivered around us as I traced the shape of an eye into the boy's palm with my fingertip. Here. Share. The outline flickered briefly, a silver flash like drifting confetti, and the boy's flesh was just flesh again. He peered at it, fascinated. Find your friends, I said. Touch as many of them as you can with this hand, and send them out among the crowd. The magic will end when the Aramary family head returns to Sky. Then I closed my free hand and opened it again. This time, a single coin sat in my palm. A hundred Mary piece, more than the boy could have stolen in a week, unless he'd gotten very bold or very lucky. The boy's eyes fixed on it, but he did not reach for it, swallowing. I can't take money from you. Don't be stupid, I said tucked the coin into his pocket before I let him go. No follower of mine should ever do something for nothing. If you need to change it safely, go to the Arms of Knight and South Route and tell Lahad I sent you. He'll be an ass about it, but he won't cheat you. Now go. And because he was staring at me, awe stunting his wits, I winked at him and then stepped back, letting myself vanish amid the crowd. There was no magic to this. It just took an understanding of how mortals moved when they gathered together in herds like this. The boy did the same thing as part of his pickpocketing, but I had several thousand years' experience on him. From his perspective, I seemed to disappear. I caught a final glimpse of his mouth falling open and then let the traffic carry me elsewhere. Smoothly done, said Glee when I found her again. She had been waiting in front of a small café standing as still and striking as a pillar amid the flow of babbling mostly Amen. Were you watching? The café had a bench, which was packed. I didn't even try to sit. Instead, I leaned against a wall, half in Glee's shadow. Though neither of us were Amen, I was betting no one would notice me with her there. After five minutes, I knew I was right. Half the people who passed us glanced at her, and the other half ignored us altogether. Some, she replied. I'm not a god. I can't see without my eyes like you do. But I can see magic, even in a crowd. Oh. Demon magic was always strange. I slipped my hands into my pockets and yawned loudly, not bothering to cover my mouth, despite the disgusted glances of a passing couple. So a tempest around here somewhere, too? No. I snorted, what exactly is it that you're protecting him from? Nothing short of demon's blood can kill him, and who would do that, given the consequences? She said nothing for a long moment, and I thought she would ignore me. Then she said, How much do you know about God's blood? I know the mortals drink it when they can, for a taste of magic. My lip curled. During my first few decades in Skye, some of the Aramiri had taken blood from me. It had done nothing for them, since my flesh then was more or less mortal, but that hadn't stopped them from trying. I know some of my siblings sell it to them. Gods know why. Glee shrugged. Our organization, via Kitter's group, keeps an eye on such sales. A few months ago, Kitter received a request for some very unusual God's blood. More unusual anyway than the standard requests for menstrual flow or heart blood. Now it was my turn to be surprised, mostly because I hadn't realized any of my sisters bothered menstruating. Why in darkness? Well, it didn't matter. e is mortal now. His flesh is, anyway. His blood would only sour some poor mortal's stomach. He is still one of the three, Sia. Even without magic, his blood has value. And who's to say that these mask users can't find a way to eke magic out of Father's blood even in his current state? Remember that there is God's blood in the Northerners' masks. And remember that Call's mask is yet incomplete. I cursed as I understood. I did this strictly in sinmite, Too dangerous to speak our tongue under these conditions. No way to know who was listening or what strange magic slept nearby. This is what comes of gods selling prices of themselves to mortals. My stupid, stupid younger siblings. Hadn't they seen again and again that mortals would always find a way to use gods, hurt us, control us if they could? I slammed a fist against the unyielding stone of the wall behind me and gasped as, instead of cracking the wall, my hand reminded me of its fragility with a white, breathtaking flash of pain. Glee sighed. Stop that. Coming over, she took my hand and lifted it, turning it this way and that to see whether I'd broken the bone. I hissed and tried to pull away, but she threw me such a quailing glare that I stopped squirming and meekly held still. She would be a terrifying mother someday, if she ever had children. For what it's worth, I agree with you, she said quietly, though I don't limit my condemnation to mortals. Remember what gods have done with the blood of demons, after all. I flinched at this, my anger evaporating into shame. Not broken, she pronounced, and let me go. I cradled my hand to my chest since it still hurt, and sulking made me feel better. Gods are not truly creatures of flesh, Glee continued, nodding toward my injured hand. I understand this but the vessels that you wear in this realm contain something of the real you, enough to access the greater whole. She let out a long, heavy breath. The Aramiri had Nahadoth in their possession for centuries. You know better than I how much of his body they might have taken in that time. And while I doubt they have anything of Yani, they did have a piece of Anifa in their keeping. I inhaled the stone of earth, the last remnant of my mother's flesh taken from the corporeal form that had died when Etempis poisoned her with demon's blood. It was gone now, because Yani had incorporated it into herself. But for two thousand years it had been a physical object, kept in the exclusive possession of mortals who had already developed a taste for the power of gods. "'A pound of the Night's Lord's flesh,' Glee said. "'And perhaps nothing more than a speck of the Grey Lady's.' Add to that some portion of the day, Father, and use mortal magic to stir the mix. She shrugged. I cannot imagine what would result from such a recipe. Can you? Nothing good. Nothing sane. To mingle the essences of the three was to invoke a level of power that no mortal and few godlings could handle safely. The crater that would be left by such an attempt would be immense— and it would be a crater not on the face of the world, but on reality itself. No god would do this, I murmured, shaken. This call, he has to know how dangerous this is. He can't be planning what we think he's planning. Vengeance was his nature, but this went beyond vengeance. This was madness. Nevertheless, Glee said, the worst case is what we must prepare for. And this is why I don't intend to let anyone have my father. The familiar look was there again, in the cold implacability of her voice and the stubborn set of her shoulders. For a moment, I imagined a circle of light revolving about her, a white sword in her hands. But no. You're mortal, I said softly. Even if you can somehow keep Tempest hidden from a god, you won't be able to do it forever. If nothing else, Call can wait you out. She looked at me, and for an instant I was painfully aware that only the fragile shield of her skin stood between me and her deadly demonic blood. Call will die before I do, she said. I'll make certain of that. With that, she turned and walked into the crowd, leaving me alone with my wonder and fear. I bought a tamarind juice to console myself. After a while, I decided to see whether the seed I'd planted had borne any fruit. Closing my eyes and sitting down on the steps of a closed bookstore, I sought out the boy who bore my mark. It took only a moment, and to my delight, I found that he had spread the mark to eight others already, all of whom were now roving through the crowd on both sides of the barricaded street. I could hear through them, too, mostly the ever-present murmur of the crowd, punctuated by the occasional variance— Horse hooves as a mounted order keeper passed on the street. Music as a busker plied his trade. All of the sights were from a child's point of view. I sighed in longing and settled in to wait for the festivities to begin. Two hours passed. Glee eventually came back and reported that Nemer, who hadn't bothered to speak to me, had sent a message that there was no sign of trouble thus far. Better still, Glee handed me a cup of savory ice, flavored with rosemary and sari flowers, that she'd bought from some vendor. For that alone, I would love her forever. As I licked my fingers, the crowd abruptly grew tense, and their noise trebled all at once. I had to keep my eyes closed in order to focus on the children's vision, but through their eyes I saw the first white, waving banners of Descartes' procession, which had reached the avenue of nobles at last there came a marching column of soldiers first, several hundred deep. In their midst rode a massive palanquin, gliding smoothly along the shoulders of dozens of men. Mounted soldiers and order-keepers flanked this, some with an air that made me suspect they were scriveners, and more soldiers followed behind. The palanquin was simple and graceful in its design, little more than a railed platform, but it had been constructed of daystone, too, and shone like noonday in this perpetually twilight city. And atop this, stunning and stark in black, stood Descartes. He'd added a heavy mantle to his outfit, which suited his broad shoulders perfectly, and stood with his legs apart and his hands gripping the forward rail as if it were the yoke of the world. No detached gaze for him. His eyes scanned the crowd as the procession traveled. His expression as cool and challenging as I'd ever seen. When the palanquin stopped and the men lowered it to the ground, he did not wait for it to touch the street stones before he stepped off its side and strode forward, purposeful and swift. The soldiers parted clumsily, and his guards scrambled to follow. Deka stopped, however, on reaching the foot of the steps. There he flicked back his cloak and waited, his eyes trained on the world tree, or perhaps he was gazing at the palace nestled in the lowest fork of its trunk. It was his first sight of home in ten years, after all, if he still considered Sky home. The crowd, meanwhile, had gone mad for him. People on either side of the street barriers cheered, shouted, and waved their white pennants. Through one of my spy children's eyes, I saw a gaggle of well-dressed merchant girls scream and point at Deka and scream again, clutching at each other and jumping up and down. It was more than his beauty, I realized. It was everything, his hauteur, the implied defiance of his clothing, the confidence that seemed to issue from his very pores. Everyone knew his story. Born an outsider, the spare who could never be heir. That was part of it, too. He was more like them than a true Aramary, and he was stronger, not weaker for his difference. They certainly seemed to love him for it. But then there was a stir at the other end of the avenue. From somewhere within the salon, two people emerged. Ramina Aramari, magnificent in a white uniform with the full sigil stark on his brow. And another man I didn't recognize. Well-dressed, timon, tall for one of that race, with waist-length locks wrapped in silver cuffs and studded with what had to be diamonds. He wore white, too, though not completely. The center line of his uniform, which otherwise matched Ramina's, had been accented by a double line of green fabric edged in gold, the colors of the Temin Protectorate, Daytona Kanru, Shahar's husband-to-be. They moved to the center of the steps and then stood waiting, their presence enough of a warning that no one missed what followed. There was a flicker atop both sets of Daystone steps, and in the same instant two women appeared. To the right was Remith, clad in a deceptively simple white satin gown, carrying an object that made my belly clench, a glass scepter, tipped with a spade-like sharp blade. To the left, in spite of everything that had happened, in spite of my resolve to be a man and not a boy about it, I had to open my own eyes to see for myself. Shahar. It was clear that Remith intended for her daughter to be the center of attention. This was not difficult. As like Dakarta, Shahar had only grown in beauty over the years. Her figure had filled out, her hair was longer, and the lines of her face seemed more settled and mature. The face of a woman at last, rather than a girl. The dress she wore seemed barely attached to her flesh. The base garment was a translucent tube, thin enough that all of Shadow could see her pale skin through its fabric. But at her breasts and hips, enormous silvery flower petals, loose and curling and long as a man's arm, had been adhered to the material. They drifted behind her like clouds as she came down the steps. There was a collective gasp from the crowd as everyone realized. The petals were real and taken from the world tree's flowers. Given the size, however, they could have only been blossoms from very high on the tree, where the tree pierced the world's envelope. No mortal flower collector could climb to such airless heights, and the Aramari no longer had god slaves. How had they gotten them? Regardless, the effect was perfect. Shahar had become a mortal woman, swathed in the divine. Shahar's expression, unlike Remith's, was everything an Aramari's air should be—proud, arrogant, superior. But when she turned to face her mother and they walked toward each other, she lowered her gaze with just the perfect touch of humility. The world was not hers, not yet, not quite. Mother and daughter met between the steps, and Remith took Shahar's left hand in her right. Then, with such casual grace that they had to have practiced it dozens of times, both women turned toward the Avenue of Nobles and raised their free hands toward Descartes in clear welcome. Showing no hint of the reticence or resentment that I suspected he felt, Descartes climbed the steps to reach them, then knelt at their feet. Both women bent, offering him their hands, each of which he took in his own. Then he rose, moving to Remeth's left, and all three turned to face the waiting masses, raising their joined hands for the world to see. The crowd was a many-headed beast, screaming, stamping, cheering— The air was so full of glittering confetti that the city seemed to have been struck by a silver snowstorm. And as this little show took place, I redoubled my concentration and straightened from my slouch against the wall. I caught a glimpse of Glee, not far off. She stood, tense, scanning the street with whatever peculiar senses a demon could bring to bear. This was the moment I felt with certainty. If Usain Dar or Call or some ambitious Aramiri rival meant to strike, they would do it now. Sure enough, one of my spy children saw something. It might have been nothing. The busker I had noticed earlier near the public well had stopped playing a battered old brass loonla to peer at something. I would have dismissed the image if it had not come from my clever one, the pickpocket I'd marked. If he was paying such sudden and close attention to the busker then there was something about the busker worth seeing. I noticed the busker's open lunla case, which he'd set out before him as a silent appeal to passersby. Atop the layer of coins and notes scattered on the worn velvet, someone had tossed a larger object. I saw the busker pick it up, frowning in puzzlement. I saw the eye holes and caught a quick glimpse of lacing lines on the inside of the thing before the busker turned it around, trying to figure out what it was. A mask. I was moving before I opened my eyes. Glee was beside me, both of us rudely shoving our way through the crowd as needed. She had taken out the small messaging sphere again, and this time it glowed red instead of white, sending some wordless signal. For an instant, my god senses actually worked, and in that span I felt the faint tremor of my siblings' movements, folding and unfolding the world as they converged on the area. Through the eyes of my boy, I saw the busker's face go suddenly slack, as though a brain fit had seized him. Instead of twitching or slumping, however, he moved the mask forward, like a man moving in a dream. He put it over his face. As he tied it at the back, I caught a glimpse of white lacquer and starkly drawn shade lines. The suggestion of an entirely different face. Implacable, serene, frightening. I had no idea what archetype it had been meant to symbolize. Through the eye holes of this, the busker blinked once, sudden awareness and confusion coming into them as though he couldn't fathom why he'd put the demon-shitting thing on. He reached up to pull it off. The designs of the mask flickered as if they'd caught the light for a moment. A breath later, the man's eyes went dead. Not closed, not dazed. I am a son of Anifa. I know death when I see it. Yet the busker got to his feet and looked around, pausing as his white masked face oriented on top of the salon steps. I expected him to be walking in that direction. Instead, he charged toward the steps, running faster than any mortal should have been able, plowing down or flinging aside, far aside, anyone unfortunate enough to get in his way. I also did not expect the cobblestones that edged the salon steps to suddenly flare white, revealing themselves to be bricks of daystone that someone had painted gray to match the surrounding granite. Through this translucent layer of paint, I could see the darker, starker lines of an etched sigil, the characters on each stone together commanding immobility in the harshest god's pigeon, and addressed to any living thing that tried to cross it. A Shield of sorts and it should have worked. The Aramary on the steps had no fear of knives or arrows. Their blood sigils could deflect such things easily. All they needed to fear were these mask-wielding assassins, whose strange magic could somehow circumvent their sigils, keep them out of reach, and the Aramary would be safe, so the Scrivener Corps had reasoned. The busker staggered, then stopped as he reached the Ring of Stones. The mask swung from side to side, not in negation, and not with any movement that could be interpreted as human. I had seen gravel lizards do the same, swaying back and forth over a carcass. Too late, I remembered the simplistic literalness of scrivening magic. Any living thing, the stones commanded. But even if the busker's heart still beat and his limbs still moved, that alone did not qualify as life. The mask had dimmed his soul to nothingness. The busker stopped swaying, the rounded eye holes fixed on a target. I followed its gaze and saw Shahar frozen at the top of the steps, her eyes wide and her expression still. Oh, demons, I groaned and ran for the steps as fast as I could. The busker stepped closer to the sigil stones. There, cried Glee, pointing. She could not have been talking to me. As the crowd's cheers turned to screams and stamping became stampeding, Kitter appeared at the foot of the steps just in front of the Aramary guard. A line of twelve glowing red knives appeared in the air before her, hovering and ready. I had seen her fling those knives through armies, leaving fallen mortals like scythed wheat. She could have done that here, risking the crowd to get to her target, but like most of the godlings of the city, she would not they had all taken an oath to respect mortal life. So she waited for the fleeing mortals to scatter more, giving her a clear shot. I saw the danger before she did, for she had ignored the Aramiri's guards behind her. Faced with a strange godling and a mad mortal, they reacted to both. Half of them fired crossbows at the masked man, the other half fired at Kitter. This could not do her any lasting harm, but it did throw her off balance as her body jerked with the impact of the bolts. She recovered in an instant, shouting at them in fury, and as she did so, the masked man pushed past the barrier as if the air had turned fleetingly to butter. Slowed, but not stopped. I thought Kitter would miss her chance, distracted by the mortals. Instead, she hissed, her form flickering for just an instant. In her place curled an enormous red-brown snake, its cobra-like hood flared. Then she was a woman again and the knives streaked at the man with the speed of spat poison, all twelve of them thudding into his body with such force that he should have been flung halfway to the city limits. Instead, he merely stopped for a moment, rocking back on his heels. That was the first evidence that the mask had its own protective magic. I saw a glimmer around the edges of his mask, against his skin underneath. What was it doing? Strengthening his flesh, certainly, or Kitter's knives would have torn it apart, displacing the force of the blows. Before I could fathom it, the busker started forward again, running slower because of the knives in his thighs, but running. And in that instant, a second masked man, this one bigger and heavier, raced out of the crowd and plowed into the guards from the side. Two of them. Two of them. Glee cursed. We were too far from the madness going too slow as we fought our way through the panicked crowd. She grabbed my shoulder. Get them to Sky," she said, and flung me through the ether. Startled, I materialized atop the salon steps, in front of an equally stunned cluster of Aramiri and soon-to-be Aramary eyes. Sia, said Shahar. She stared at me, oblivious to the chaos twenty steps away, and I knew in that instant that she still loved me get the hells out of here, I snapped at her, stifling my fury at glee. Why in heavens had she sent me? What could I do with no useful magic? Why are you just standing here? Go back to sky, dammit. There was a crackle and lightning arced up from somewhere within the crowd, twisting back down to strike the second masker and a handful of guards who were flung away screaming, idiot scriveners. Like the first masker, this one stumbled, stopped, a moment later, he lurched forward, his hands scrabbling for purchase on the steps, until he could manage to run upright again. The guards had had enough time to recoup, however. Wrath Aramary, a naked sword in his hand, swept past us at the head of the twin lines of soldiers. One line split and converged around us to protect Rimith and the rest of us. The other line, Wrath directed to assist the guards at the foot of the steps. Rath fell in at Remeth's side, daring to put a hand on her shoulder as she urged back toward the Daystone steps. Both maskers ran right into the thicket of pikes and swords. From the men's reactions, however, or lack thereof, it was already clear the blows would only slow them down, not stop them, or kill them. They were already dead. What in demons? murmured Datanay I followed his gaze, and my mouth went dry. A third masker had appeared—this one on the steps of the nearby Itempen White Hall. He wore the uniform of an order-keeper, but unlike the first two, his mask was the deep, splashy crimson of blood, with stylized white and gold designs, and an open mouth that suggested a roar of vengeful fury. This man, too, began to run toward us, and with the crowd thinning and the guards occupied, nothing stood in his way. Nothing but me. Oh, gods, no, I whispered. What could I do? N pulsed hot against the skin of my chest. I grabbed for it. Then I remembered. N's power was mine. When I was strong, so was it. But I was only mortal now. If I used N, drained the last of its strength. No, I would not kill my oldest friend. Not for this and I would not let my new friends, even if one of them had betrayed me, die. I was still a god, damn it, even without magic. I was still the wind and caprice, even bound into dying flesh. I would fear no mere mortal, no matter how powerful. So I bared my teeth and lashed the tail I no longer possessed. Shouting a challenge, I ran down the steps to meet the crimson masker. My words had been in the first tongue, a command though I hadn't expected the man to listen. But to my shock, the crimson masker stopped and turned toward me. This mask was beautiful and horrid, the runnels and paint suggesting fouled rivers, the strange angled eyes like crooked mountains. Its mouth, a stylized thing of lips and teeth with a dark pit of an opening beyond which I could not see its wearer's face, was twisted and a wail of utmost despair. Murderer its markings whispered to me, and suddenly I thought of all the evils I'd done during the God's War. I thought of the evils I'd done since, sometimes at the Aramiri's bidding, sometimes out of my own rage or cruelty. Forgetting my own challenge amid crushing guilt, I stumbled to a halt. I felt a jolt, sudden restriction and pain. Blinking, I looked down and found that the man had made a blade of his hand and had thrust it into my body at the midriff nearly up to the wrist. I was still staring down at this when Carter reached me. He grabbed my arm and spoke without words, whipping his head in a wide, vicious arc. Sound and force flooded from his throat, a roar of denial powered by the living energy of his skin and blood and bone, better than many gods could have done. Where the power struck the crimson-masked man, I saw it cancel the mask's message. The mask split down the center with a faint crack, and an instant later he flew backward a good fifty feet, vanishing amid the fleeing crowd. I could not see precisely where he landed, because then Deka's power struck the steps of the salon, which erupted, shattering into rubble and bursting upward in an arcing spray. There could be no precision to such a strike. Guards and soldiers went flying, screaming, along with the enemy. Through all this, I saw another white masked man, one I hadn't noticed, run into the barrier of broken flying stone and tumble back. But as the dust and rubble returned to earth, he sat up. Nimmer appeared, swathed in shadows, facing me. I saw her eyes widen at the sight of my wound. Beyond her, I saw the fallen, white-masked man get to his feet and come charging again, this time leaping with godlike strength over the channel of rubble that Decca had created. I willed a warning, since I could not muster the breath, and to my astonishment, Nimmer seemed to hear me. She turned and met the man as he struck. Then I was in Decca's arms, being carried like a child. Bump-da-bump-da-bump. It was nice that he was so much bigger than me. He ran up the steps to the rest of the Aramiri party, who had finally, finally begun to hurry up the curving steps toward the nearer gate. From Deka's embrace, I tried to shout at them to go faster, but I couldn't lift my head. So strange. It was like my first day as a mortal, when Shahar had summoned me to this realm as the cat. Or the day two thousand years before that, when a tempest had thrown me down in chains of flesh and given my leash to a woman one of Shahar's daughters, who looked equal parts horrified and elated at the power she held. Then we reached the top of the steps, and the world folded into a blur, and I passed out in its rippling crease.